Hello and welcome to a specially recorded podcast. Uh, the podcast from the preach that I gave on Sunday morning at Living Rock Church in Stony Stanton. Unfortunately, was lost when the computer crashed. So this is a special re-recording of my preach on the cross and the crown, the second in the series. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. Church, we've been focusing uh, a lot and will be focusing a lot on the cross of Jesus Christ, of his death, his burial, and his resurrection and ascension, and the crowning of him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's so exciting to be able to focus on this subject together. And we talk about the cross a lot, we talk about the crown a lot, but we're really going to focus in on those two aspects of the work of Christ. Um, and the reason for this is because at Bible Week last year, Without Borders, which is our kind of joint family camp, if you like. Um, Some prophetic words were brought to us as elders, but not just to us as elders, to the church as a whole. And two of the key words uh, that were brought to us have shaped the things that we're going to be focusing on with the things that we we look at together around the cross and the crown. The first word that came, or one of the words that came, was that God will be granting us success. And that born out of that success, people's testimony will be, isn't Jesus wonderful? What a fantastic accolade to receive as the church of God, that people meet us, they experience the blessing of God and God granting us success, but their testimony isn't, isn't that a great church or isn't this individual great? It's, isn't Jesus wonderful? And another word that came was that we would experience a move in a fresh measure of power that would come from a fresh understanding of what the cross has achieved. That understanding what the cross has achieved will give us fresh faith, for greater miracles, and those would be seen among the people, not just among the few, not just among the leadership, but among the whole church, that as together we have a fresh revelation of the cross, it will unlock faith for us. Power and miracle will be released as a result. And so it's really exciting, the things that uh, God's going to do among us as we grow in our understanding and appreciation of this incredible work, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, the cross is so profound. There's so many elements to it, so many facets that we do need to look at it from different angles and perspectives. It's such a profound statement uh, that we see described for us in the Word, such a profound moment in time. And uh, a few weeks ago, when David started us off on this uh, great topic and introduced it so wonderfully, one of the quotes that he gave was this. He said, the cross stands at the crossroads of time and eternity as a perfect revelation of God's plan and purpose for all things. The cross stands at the crossroads of time and eternity as a perfect revelation of God's plan and purpose for all things. You know, the the cross is an incredible statement. And even if you look at the cross, you can see that 
the, the kind of the horizontal and the vertical aspects of the cross represent something of the work of the cross. That vertical connecting heaven and earth, how Jesus came, the sun came to the earth from heaven. And as a result, connected heaven and earth. There'd been a disconnect that was created by sin and he breached that gap. He bridged that gap. And that vertical strut of the cross represents that so wonderfully. That point where eternity and time as we know it, linear time, converged and met. And also the horizontal, how that kind of all-encompassing, that all-embracing work of Jesus on the cross that wasn't just for all that live today, but for all who've ever lived throughout history, that the cross is a means and a place of hope and God's provision for all mankind through all time to come back into relationship with him. Even those who lived before Jesus was crucified around 30 AD. Every man, every woman who's ever lived finds hope in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a mind-blowing concept. And when David uh, talked about the cross, he gave four points that I want to pick on today. And I want to use the picture of the cross and pictures within the Bible, because the Bible is such a, a rich treasury of images and pictures that point to, to Jesus and the cross. I want to look at those things and explore them together, and hopefully together we'll gain a fresh appreciation of what the cross achieved and the impact that has on our lives uh, as Christians today. You know, somebody once said a picture paints a thousand words, and our Bible is packed with wonderful pictures and images, motifs that represent and reveal something of the cross. And the first thing that Jesus said, uh, the first thing that David said, not what Jesus said, um, he referred to some scriptures that we're going to read together now and look at. So if you turn in your Bibles to John 12, and John 12, verse 23, Jesus is addressing his disciples. He's talking to them. He's just entered into Jerusalem, and he's been given this incredible reception, people laying down palm leaves, singing Hosanna, and uh, everybody's wanting to meet with Jesus and to see him, but Jesus is not being distracted from his primary purpose. He understood why he'd come, and here he's beginning to explain to those around him why he's here. And so John 12, verse 23, Jesus replies, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. Now, there's an incredible statement that Jesus makes here. And one of the first things that we should understand about the cross is, is that it demonstrates God's glory. That was one of the points that David 
brought to us uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It demonstrates God's glory. In verse 23, Jesus says, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. But later on, he talks about the battle that's going on inside him and the, the desire within him as a man to potentially save himself from such a difficult process of the cross that he was going to go through. He knew exactly what he was going to be facing. But his prayer, his ultimate prayer, the prayer that underpinned everything that he did, is summed up in verse 28. He says, Father, bring glory to your name. You know, the cross demonstrates the glory of God. Firstly, it does this. It presents God's attributes. Multifaceted, many pictures, many angles that reveal different aspects of God's nature and his attributes and his character. They all converge. They all meet at the cross in such an incredible way, in sort of technicolor and surround sound. At the cross, we see God's righteous wrath. God is a God to be feared. He is a God of justice and judgment, and he's righteous and he's holy, and he judges sin. And the wrath of God is seen, poured out at the cross. We see the awesome power of God displayed in the cross. We see his unsurpassable wisdom. We see something of his untainted holiness. We, we witness his incredible mercy and amazing grace. And above all else, of all the aspects of God that we see, the one that we must never lose sight of is at the cross. We, we see demonstrated beautifully God's unfailing, perfect love. It's because of the Father's love that he sent the Son. It's because of the Son's love for the Father that he obeyed the Father and came, but he also came because he loves us. And God sent his Son because he loves the world. That's what it says in John 3.16. The, the love of God is at the heart of the cross. And therefore it brings and demonstrates his glory and his perfect plan that's revealed in the Word. You know, the cross was not plan B. The cross was, wasn't God looking for ideas after things went wrong in Genesis 3. The cross had always been the plan. 1 Peter 1.18 tells us that Jesus Christ, he was crucified before the foundations of the world. Why don't you turn there? Turn to 1 Peter 1. Verse 18. It says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. God knew exactly what he was going to do. The Son was obedient to the Father right from the beginning, even before the creation of the heavens and the earth, before the foundations of the world. The cross was the answer. The, the cross was part of God's plan, part of God's provision. Demonstrates, it presents his attributes and demonstrates his glory. Secondly, it demonstrates God's glory in the way that it proves our value. God made you and I to love him and to be loved by him and for relationship. And the cross proves that God was serious about the relationship that he wants to have with us. That he's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. When we read the story in Genesis of how Adam and Eve fell, of how they were usurped, of how they gave up so much for a lie and for, for a bite of the fruit that they were tricked into rebelling and they rebelled in their own heart against God. There were, in so many ways, God could have said, that's it. I'm done with you. I've finished with you. You've, you've, you've made your bed. You've made your decision. 
now you have to suffer and death is all that you're going to know. Instead, he provides and takes the initiative and is moved to save us. We could never save ourselves. And we see the language that Peter uses in, in the scripture that we've just read in 1 Peter 1 verse 18. God paid a ransom to save you. It was him that paid the price. And the price wasn't just mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was something that wasn't related to earthly economics. This is a heavenly economy that God is moving in and the most precious commodity in the universe, in the heavens and the earth, is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God bought you back, bought me back, ransomed us. We were bought at a price by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God loves us. He values us. God loves you and it proves your value. We see that displayed incredibly, powerfully at the cross. It presents his attributes, it proves our value, and lastly, it does this. The cross perplexes the enemy. You know, throughout the Bible, there are stories time and again of the enemy being perplexed, his plans being literally turned over by God to promote God's plans, and God had, has the upper hand. God never loses out to the enemy. The tables are always turned on the enemy. The enemy makes his move, and then God makes his move, and it's checkmate. You know, we see it right from the beginning in, in all sorts of places. In, in Genesis, Joseph, the dreamer, explains to his brothers and his father and his mother what's going to happen, and, and the enemy thinks God's got big things lined up for this young man. I'm going to turn his brothers against him. I'm going to make sure that they try and kill him or at least sell him into slavery, and he's sold for silver, and he suffers, and he's sent away, but all that's happened is they've They've sent into the place that's going to be their place of provision in the future. And in that process, Joseph grows and he develops and he matures to become a man who's able to take the reins of not just Egypt, but of the nations around him and be a great ruler and preserve and save God's people, God's covenant people. When we look at the life of Moses, we see that Pharaoh, the enemy, is trying to wipe out this special baby. But all he does is moves Moses' mother to, to plant him in the river to entrust him to God and sure enough God places him in Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh pays for Moses' upbringing for the first 40 years of his life for his clothes and his food and his education puts a roof over his head does all of those things the one child he was trying to kill and he ends up bringing him up and training him and preparing him to lead God's people out of slavery 40 years later on God gets the upper hand just look in Esther we find two men, Haman, the Jew-hater, the anti-Semite, and Mordecai, Esther's cousin. And Haman is determined to not just kill Mordecai, but wipe out the Israelites. He's prepared a special gallows to kill Mordecai on. And then one day Xerxes, the king, calls Haman into his courtroom to ask him how he can honor a man. And Haman thinks that he wants to honor him. The king wants to honor Haman. And so Haman says, oh, well, you know, you should get the, the king's robes placed on his shoulder, place him on the horse of the king and parade him through the town center and get people to cheer and shout and somebody to announce this is what happens to anyone who honors the king. He will be honored by the king, thinking that he's going to receive that. And the king says, great, go and make sure that all of those things happen to my servant Mordecai. And Haman has to dress and robe Mordecai. He has to place him on a horse. He has to shout before all the people that this is a man who's being honored the one that he wanted to kill, the one that he wanted to wipe out, he's now honoring. And then the, the means that he had produ uh, produced to kill Mordecai were the means by his own death. God turns the tables on the enemy. And no more so do we see that evident 
than at the cross. When the Son of God died, the enemy thought he'd won. He thought, finally, I've killed him. I've killed the Son of God. I've won. But all he had done was planted a seed. Jesus himself had said it. Unless a kernel of wheat dies and falls to the ground, nothing can happen. But if it dies and is planted, then it produces many new kernels. That's all he'd done, is he'd planted the seed. When he lifted Jesus up on the cross, Jesus had been beaten and battered and, and abandoned and, 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 and ashamed and stripped. And he thought, finally, I'm shaming the Son of God. This must be my moment of victory. And all he'd done was lift Jesus up so that Jesus could say, I will be lifted up so that I can draw all men to myself. God turns the tables on the enemy. He perplexes the enemy. We see that displayed wonderfully at the cross. And you know, throughout our Bibles, there are wonderful treasures, wonderful insights, little images that help us to grasp and have a fresh appreciation of the power and the significance of the cross and of Jesus' work. Just look at Isaac in Genesis 20, walking up the hill, carrying the wood on his shoulders, obedient to his father, and he's carrying the wood for his own sacrifice obediently up the hill. It's a picture of Christ and the cross. You read the prophetic messianic psalms of David, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24, those three psalms together that shift from the cross of Christ in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of the suffering that he experienced on the cross, him going through the valley of the shadow of death, in Psalm 23, and then finally his ascension into heaven and the opening up of the ancient gates and the ancient doors in Psalm 24. It's a prophetic declaration of the cross and the crown, of Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant, and prophets like Zechariah and Micah and many others describe Christ and the cross. People represent him. Prophecies tell us about him, and there are pictures. The lamb slain in Exodus. The bird that is killed on behalf of uh, somebody who's suffering from skin diseases while another bird is released to somehow provide a cure for their sickness. The rock in the wilderness that was struck and produced water. The bronze serpent in Numbers. The scapegoat in Deuteronomy. All of these are pictures and images of the cross and of Jesus Christ and his work. And so surely we see the cross demonstrate the glory of God. Also the cross does this. Secondly, not only demonstrates the glory of God, but we see at the cross that Jesus has destroyed every enemy. In John 12, 31, Jesus says very clearly that this, the time of judgment has come where the ruler of this world will be cast down. He's describing the final crushing of the enemy that was going to take place in his death on the cross. Jesus came to destroy the enemy's work. 1 John 3 verse 8 says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, to destroy the works of the evil one. You know, the evil one had always tried to usurp God. And in the garden, in Genesis 3, we find him lying, embodied rebellion, lying to a woman, lying to a man, causing them and tempting them to sin so that they too would rebel, so that they could be usurped, so they would surrender their, their authority and now become subservient to him. They were now ashamed. They were now oppressed. Sin had now entered into their world and into their life. And God calls out, Adam, where are you? It's not that he doesn't know where Adam is. Adam's not particularly good at hide and seek. It's that Adam 
is no longer in relationship with God as he was. And, and God is saying, Adam, where are you at? What have you done? And when we see the unfolding of the story, we see that God curses the ground, that God curses the serpent, and that he tells Adam and Eve that they're going to suffer labor in different ways, labor pains in different ways. And he brings a judgment. And in Genesis 3, verse 15, God says about the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the enemy that there'll be hostility between them and that the enemy will strike the heel of her offspring, but her offspring will crush his head. And all of a sudden, this this powerful description of head crushing appears here in Genesis 3.15, and we see it picked up as we move and read through our Bibles. If you turn to Joshua 10, the covenant people of God, God's people are moving into the land that God had promised them. And Joshua has obediently taken the mantle on from Moses and is leading God's people to take on the Canaanite nations and the armies that are of that land to bring, them in, bring, bring an order and to move into the land, to take it as God had promised them. And sure enough, Joshua and his armies have a great success over five kings and their armies. And once they've beaten the armies, Joshua calls the kings and brings them and lays them on the floor and then calls out in verse 24 of Joshua 10, all the commanders of his army. And he says this, come and put your feet on the king's necks. And they did as they were told. Just picture those kings lying on the floor. These regal men, these men of power and authority lying in the dust as those Israelite commanders, military commanders, are standing with their heels, their feet placed squarely and firmly on their necks. It's a picture of head crushing. It's a picture of authority. It's a picture of power. It's a picture of overcoming of an enemy that's been completely uh, disabled and, and, and is being destroyed. Turn to Judges 4. 21, another enemy of God's people, another enemy of the Israelites, Sisera, who's representing the Canaanite king, and he's leading an army against God's people. And Deborah, the prophetess, the judge, calls Barak to her and says, Barak, I want you to go to battle and defeat the armies of Sisera. And Barak says, okay, I'll go, Deborah, as long as you come with me. But she says, well, because of that, because you've asked this, this was the Lord's victory, and you're entrusting me more than the Lord, you'll get victory, but Sisera will die at the hands of a woman. And sure enough, Barak's forces overpower and overthrow Sisera's army. And Sisera manages to escape. He leaps away from his horse and he runs away and thinks he's found safe haven, finds a tent, the tent of Jael. And Jael welcomes him in and he asks for a drink and she gives him some milk and he lies down in the bed and he's so exhausted, he very quickly falls asleep. And then horror of horrors, Jael takes a tent peg and <laughs> rams it, nails it straight through his skull, crushes his head, kills the captain of the armies who are opposing God's people. Head crushed, enemy destroyed. We turn again to a little bit further on into Judges 9. Judges 9, verse 53, we'll pick it up where Abimelech, Gideon's son, who was a real nightmare son, is seeking to attack the town of, of Thebes. And he's managed to uh, come into the town and he's about to take it. And a lot of people have escaped into a tower for refuge. And he decides that he's going to burn the tower down. He's going to set fire to it to wipe them out. And as he is arranging his army to set fire to the entrance of the tower, a woman on the top of the roof, verse 53, 
of Judges 9 pushes a millstone that lands on Abimelech's head and it says, crushed his skull. You know, it's no accident that these stories are described for us in the Bible and what they represent. They represent that the enemies of God's people, that the enemies who are opposing God's will, that, that there, there was a head crushing that took place that's leading its way, leading us along a path towards the cross of Jesus Christ. Psalm 91 is a wonderful psalm. It's got to be up there in many people's favorite psalms. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It's a wonderful psalm. But in verse 13, the psalmist says this, you will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. It's an interesting comment, but he's describing again the crushing of the enemy. And you know what? The final act of head crushing takes place and is described for us wonderfully in John's gospel. As John describes where Jesus is to be crucified, where he's to die, in John 19, it says that they took Jesus away and then Jesus carried the cross, verse 17, by himself and he went to a place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew means Golgotha. And there they nailed him to the cross. You know what, on Skull Hill, the cross was dropped in, and as it was, the enemy's skull, the enemy's head was crushed once and for all. As Jesus hung on that cross, it was like that tent peg going into Sisera's head. It plunged into Skull Hill, and the enemy's head was crushed once and for all. The enemy destroyed. In Luke 10, 19, Jesus says, I've given you all authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Jesus isn't giving them a dare, a weird dare to go and find scorpions and and serpents and start treading on them. He's describing the evil powers in the spiritual realm and he's saying, power is, an authority has been given to you, a power over the enemy. Go out and crush some skulls. Nothing will injure you. Romans 16, 20, Paul writes and he says, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet. Not the God of war, not the God of battle, the God of peace. Why? Because Jesus' work is complete. He crushed the enemy on the cross and therefore we can go in peace and bruise Satan under our feet. Wherever we find anything that's seeking to oppose the will of God, any movement of the enemy, we are to go as God's people, as his army, and crush the enemy. I was a physiotherapist for 10 years and I didn't specialize in head injuries but I can say this very clearly and definitively head crushing is terminal when your head is crushed it's game over you can recover from a struck heel you cannot recover from a crushed skull we are God's people the devil is under our feet and we're to move forward to stand firm as the army of God why because the victory was achieved for us on the cross. The enemy was destroyed. He was disempowered. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus exposed them, exploited them, embarrassed them, and marched them around in shame, showing that he'd overcome them completely. They have no power. And we are here as God's people, as his army, to stand firm and to extend the kingdom of God and extend the work of Christ on the cross as we crush those pockets of resistance of a defeated enemy under our feet. The cross was not one moment in time, but it was a once and for all moment that achieved for us victory over the enemy. Demonstrates God's glory, destroys every enemy. And thirdly, and wonderfully, the cross does this. It dresses and dignifies the shamed. Dresses and dignifies 
the shamed. When Jesus died on the cross, he made a way for a new order of mankind. If we go back to John 12, the portion that we read right at the beginning, Jesus says this, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies. It's an interesting statement. He's referring obviously to his death. But it begs the question as well, if he's talking about death and we're seeing origins right from the beginning of our Bibles, where do we find the first death? Now, the first death was not Cain killing Abel. The first death happened before that. The first death was not Adam and Eve dying. Although God said they would die, they didn't die immediately when they ate the fruit. Something else dies before they die, before Abel dies. When they had sinned against God, when they'd gone against his will, it says that they suddenly realized that they were naked and they were ashamed that they recognized that they were now exposed and they felt guilty and shame and, 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 and lost for the first time. And we see this shift from glory to, to guilt. There's an interesting ancient Hebrew teaching that suggests that before the fall, Adam and Eve, as they were made in the image of God, were clothed or wrapped in light because God himself had said in the word, is wrapped in light. And that essentially covered their form. But when they sinned, they lost that covering. That light left them. They lost something of the glory of God when they sinned and they fell. And they were realized that they were naked and exposed as the light left them. I don't know whether that's true, but it's a very powerful image and a very powerful picture. And what I do know is this, that they were naked, they were exposed, they were guilty and they were ashamed. And God could have left them and rightly left them in that state but when you look at Genesis 3.21, we see that in a wonderful way, God again takes the initiative and is moved to do something so precious. In Genesis 3.21, it says, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. I believe the first death was the death of an innocent animal. An innocent animal died so that Adam and Eve's sin and shame could be covered so they could be clothed so they could be dressed and dignified. And that was only the beginning. That was only a shadow of the death that was going to take place at the cross that would cover our sin and our shame once and for all. There are wonderful pictures in the Old Testament of, of covering taking place and of the dressing and the dignifying that goes with that. You know, after the flood, uh, Noah planted a vineyard and he grew some, I'm, I don't know whether it was a Shiraz or a Chateauneuf-de-Pape, or a Cabernet Sauvignon. He might have had a few grapes on the go. Whatever it was, he produced a wine and he drank too much of it. And after drinking it, he falls asleep naked in his tent. And his son Ham comes along and sees that his dad is naked and out for the count in the tent and thinks it's funny. So he goes to get Shem and Japheth, his other two brothers, to come and laugh at his father. But Shem and Japheth will do no such thing. And instead of mocking their father, of dishonoring him, they show him great honor and dignity by walking in backwards and covering their father with a blanket. And his, his, his shame and his sin in many ways is covered by his two sons. Wonderful act of honor. Represents that dignifying that takes place when we're covered in that way that we see represented in Genesis 3.21. And then if you just move a little bit further on into Genesis 27... You've got the two brothers, sibling rivalry gone wild. Jacob and Esau, twin brothers. 
And Jacob is desperate. Although he's the secondborn, he's desperate to be the firstborn. He wants the blessing. He wants the birthright. And he gets the birthright from his brother. He buys it for a bowl of soup. And now he wants to get the blessing. And Isaac, their father, is going old. His eyesight is very poor. And Esau's deciding that he's going to go out into the fields to hunt so that he can bring some meat back for his father to feed him before his father blesses him. And while Esau's out in the fields hunting for game, Jacob goes into Isaac's tent disguised as Esau. But his disguise is an interesting one. He doesn't wear his clothes. He covers himself in animal fur because it tells us that Esau was a very hairy man. I mean, how hairy can you get? But he was hairy enough to, tr- to trick his father by putting an animal skin on his arm. And with that covering, he's able to receive the blessing of his father, Isaac. And there's this incredible thought that as Jacob sits in front of Isaac, when Isaac looks at Jacob, because he's being covered, Isaac doesn't see Jacob, he sees Esau. He doesn't see the secondborn, he sees the firstborn and he blesses him. This is what the cross achieved for us. When Jesus died, he covered us, he dignifies us and he dresses us, but he also provides a way so that when the father looks at us, he sees his son. And he blesses us. That's what the cross achieved for us. We're dressed and we're dignified because we're covered by the work of Christ on the cross. Psalm 91, going back to that psalm again, says these wonderful words, he will cover you with his feathers. He covers us. Jesus has wrapped us. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, he has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. That is what Jesus did for us on the cross when we respond to the cross in faith. Zechariah 3, 4, God speaks to the prophet Joshua and he says, remove the filthy garments. See, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. He's taken our iniquity away and he's covered us and clothed us and dressed us and dignified us. Galatians 3, 27 says, for all of you who were baptized, all of us who have been covered, all of us who have been immersed into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. When God looks at us, he sees his son. When Jesus died on the cross, it tells us that blood and water flowed from his side. In Revelation 7, 14, when uh, John is looking at this group of people that are wearing whiter than white robes, he's asking the angel, who are these people? And the angel replies, these are the redeemed. They have washed their robes and made them white. Listen to this in the blood of the lamb. It's a bizarre statement if we don't understand the work of Christ, that their robes be made white because of blood. But the work of Jesus means that when blood and water flowed, he washes us and that we've been washed clean, we've been covered, we've been dressed in robes of white. 1 John 1, 7 says, walk in the light as he is in the light. Whether Adam and Eve were wrapped in light in the beginning, I don't know. But I love that picture and I love that image. And I just want to say, when we receive and we take by faith what Jesus has done, he, we are wrapped in a way that we're covered and enrobed in righteousness and whiteness and purity and holiness that is glorious. We are wrapped in glory. We are wrapped in light. We are a royal priesthood. If what Jesus achieved on the cross shows that the enemy is destroyed and we're a victorious army, that in the covering, the dressing, and the dignifying that took place by his death, we also are a royal priesthood. We're robed and clothed in righteousness. 
And if we're to stand firm like an army, surely we need to stand out like a royal priesthood, being given a new identity, new creations in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. And we must, as God's people, be willing to stand firm against the enemy and stand out and let the world see a people who have been washed and covered and forgiven and are full of life that carry and project and proclaim the glory of God. The cross demonstrates God's glory. The cross destroys the enemy. The cross dresses and dignifies us. And lastly, for this section, for this word today, it also does this, it displays life and hope. In John 12, 32, Jesus makes this claim. He says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. That's not the first time that Jesus had talked about being lifted up. And uh, if you go back just a little bit further into John, uh, earlier on into John's gospel, to John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Jesus makes a very similar statement. As he's, Nicodemus has come to ask him about the kingdom of God, ask him about spiritual things. And um, in John 3, verse 12, Jesus says this, uh, If you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And then, of course, we know John 3.16, God so loved the world. But Jesus is describing him being lifted up to bring hope to the world. And he's relaying that picture um, that we find in Numbers 21 of the bronze serpent to himself. So if we go back to Numbers 21, we've started in Genesis 3, but let's have a look at the story that we have recorded for us in Numbers 21. In this situation, the people of God are complaining against God. They're saying, we've not got enough water and we're sick of all this horrible angel food that keeps wonderfully and miraculously appearing every day. We've had enough. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment. And in verse 6 of Numbers 21, it tells us the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and many were bitten and died. And then the people came to Moses and cried out, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze, attached it to the pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. No, the people had a serious problem. Snakes were going among them, biting them, and they were becoming uh, bitten by venomous snakes and dying. And their, 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 their outcry to Moses is, pray and ask God to take the snakes away. Well, that's fine if you haven't been bitten, but if you've been bitten by a snake, then you really are in trouble because the venom is now in your system. And so God has a far more useful solution to their problems. He tells Moses to make a bronze serpent to lift it up so that everybody who looks at it that even if they have been bitten, there's hope for them, that they can be healed, that there's a cure provided as long as they look at the bronze serpent. And we know in Genesis 3, the serpent was cursed. And so essentially, Moses is holding up a curse. 
In Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Galatians 3, 13 tells us this about what Jesus happened to Jesus on the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Jesus became a curse for us. He was lifted up. But as we look to him, the curse that's affecting us, the venom of sin, if you like, that's in our system, the power of it is removed from us when we look and see him who became a curse for us on the cross. As he's lifted up, we can know healing, just as those people were healed from the venomous bite of the snakes when they looked at the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. In 2 Samuel 18, we see another son who's hanging from a tree. And again, something is dealt with as a result. You know, in, in uh, 2 Samuel 18 is the, the culmination in, in the story of David's son Absalom's rebellion against his father. Absalom wants to become king of Israel and he's rebelling against his father and he's, he's leading a revolt against his father. And finally, David and his men uh, are overcoming Absalom. And Absalom is, is in a battle and he escapes on a mule from the battle. But essentially the game's up and he's in all sorts of trouble and he's running away. And it says, during the battle, Absalom came across David's men, tried to escape and rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree. His hair got caught in the tree. His mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. I mean, the story is, in some ways, this kind of, this, this picture is almost a little bit ridiculous because of all the things that Absalom was known for, he had great hair and he was good looking. And I, would, I am pretty sure, as you read the scriptures, you can see he was a bit of a big head. And it was his pride that caused him to be stuck in the tree. But we see this, this son, this beloved son, hanging on a tree. And what happens to him? David's men come across him. They're not sure what to do with him because they've heard David saying that he wants his son Absalom to be spared. But Joab comes in verse 14. He says, enough of this nonsense. And he takes three daggers and plunges them into Absalom's heart as he dangles still alive in the great tree. We see a picture of a beloved son hanging from a tree, being pierced. And as he's pierced, rebellion is dealt with. Again, a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. That he hung from a great tree, but not rebelling against the Father in obedience to the Father, but took the curse of sin upon himself. And as he was pierced, the price was paid. And that has got to bring hope to everybody. In Genesis, in the Gospels, in Revelation, we find a tree and we find a garden. We find a son. And in the beginning, there was a tree of life. In our Gospels, there's a tree that represents death, but actually that tree becomes for us a tree of life because of what Jesus achieved on the cross. And that if we put our faith and our trust in him, we have hope, we find life, and we ourselves become trees that are planted. Time and again, you know, the, the righteous are described like trees planted by water. Psalm 1 verse 3 describes such a person. Jeremiah 17 verse 8 talks about it in the same way. Those who are planted by a river, they don't worry when the drought comes, but produce fruit time and again. And in Revelation 22 verse 12, in the garden city that John sees, there are two trees of life planted by the river that produce fruit throughout the year. 
and their leaves bring healing to the nations. And for us to recognize that as the enemy is destroyed, we can stand firm as a mighty army. As we've been dressed and dignified, we can stand out as a kingdom of priests and a royal priesthood. But also, as life has been displayed and hope is displayed through us, that the world will see that as we exist as trees planted and we stand up and present Christ, the hope that we carry, the hope that we have, to a world that is desperate for life and hope, a world that is dying, a world that is lost. And so as we look at the cross, we see all of these attributes and aspects. We see it demonstrate God's glory. We see that the cross was the point where the enemy was destroyed. We see it's where we're covered and we're dressed and we're dignified. And no matter what we've done in life, the work of Jesus on the cross, what he achieved, he carried every sin, every sickness on himself. And now he covers us and dresses us and dignifies us. And that there's a display of life and hope that we're to carry to the world around us as we stand up and hold up Christ before us. I hope that's been encouraging for you. Really excited about what God's going to show us over the coming weeks and months as we look at the cross and the crown together. And I pray that you're really blessed as you look at the word and as you look at the cross of Jesus Christ in a fresh and new way. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We meet every Sunday at 10.30am in Stony Stanton and 4pm in Tamworth and Market Harbour. Feel free to come and visit us. We'd love to meet you. Thank you.